Honorable members, honorable members, order. Switch you, on the microphone. Switch on the microphone. We are rising on a point of order. On a point of order. The microphones yeah, must be on. Welcome to Politics Unmuted, where our microphones are never muted and we turn up the volume on all things political. I'm Kanita Hunter, the Politics Editor for News 24. I'm Lisa Gatandwa, News 24's political reporter. Hi guys, I'm Peter Detoy, I'm Assistant Editor for In-Depth News at News 24. Today we are recording a bit differently, guys. I'm here in Mozambique for the week. Uh, the weather is just phenomenal where I am. <laughs> Peter, are you at the News24 Joburg office? Unfortunately, I'm uh, at the mothership in Joburg where, uh, where it's still COVID lockdown. The building is still very much empty and it's a, it's a shell of the normal, normally busy, uh, busy offices that we've come to know. But Joburg's weather is still lovely. Ah, oh, that's great. Liz, you at home? Hi Q, yes I am at home, I am in the comfort of my home, uh, I'm relaxed, I have my laptop in hand and ready to go. That's awesome guys, uh, it's always exciting, I think Wednesdays is always a highlight for my uh, of my week because we always have the most um, fascinating discussions. We'll kick off this week around self-proclaimed prophet Shepard Bushiri and his wife who've escaped from South Africa. But more than anything, it's what does this debacle teach us about the country that we live in? I also want to talk about the drama that unfolded this week at the Zondo Commission, with former President Jacob Zuma applying for Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo to recuse himself. But let's kick it off with the Bushiris. Uh, Liz, if this was a movie script, it would be rejected, I think, because it's just too dramatic. I watched it in, in disbelief, to be honest. Wasn't really involved in it. Um, and, you know, I was I was happy to be watching it not working and, and, and not being in the field. But it was it was somewhat of a wonder. I mean, there's so many details uh, that really just boggle the mind from him receiving uh, a bail to him leaving the country, uh, escaping uh, with his wife his very problematic press conference in Malawi, the president of Malawi leaving the very same day, uh, you know, the conspiracy theories about the president, you know, uh, ushering him away, taking him away from, from South African authority and also the, the South African authorities' responsibility. Well, as much as it it really is quite comical, but there's so it's such, there's a huge... Uh, implications uh, uh, around South Africa and its and its laws, South Africa and its extradition uh, treaties with some of the African countries, and it also, you know, it brought back memories for a lot of people on what happened in 2015. You remember very well, Kanita. Absolutely, uh, with uh, Omar al Bashir, we've seen it with Grace Mugabe as well. But but let's just take a, a step back, Liz. So so Shepard Bashir is obviously a self-proclaimed prophet. He and his wife Mary, they are Malawian originally. They uh, head a church called the Enlightened Christian Gathering (ECG). They've obviously been on the radar of law enforcement. Uh, they were arrested on. 
fraud, theft, and money laundering charges with two other or three other co-accused. And this is in connection with an investment scheme that people put their money into this uh, church and, and a lot of that money uh, sort of disappeared. It's um, said to be around 102 million rand. Now, the thing is, Peter, is that we are not short of these bogus profits uh, here in South Africa, right? Yeah. This is not the first yeah. one, right? No, no, it's not. Look, religion, uh, religion is a big business, isn't it? I mean, uh, we've we, if if you drive around downtown Joburg, if you drive around Pretoria, you know, they especially in the inner city and in Pretoria on the on the outskirts on the on the eastern side of Pretoria, there are all manner of different sorts of churches, all manner of revival churches, and and uh, and 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 what seems like fly by night institutions, which which really speaks to people's desire to belong to a religion or a community or whatever the case may be. And unfortunately, what we've seen proliferate, not only in this country, but definitely in, 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 uh, in, in, in the United States, in Europe and elsewhere, Australia as well, is that people often uh, or sometimes do get taken for a ride by self-proclaimed prophets. And I think let's just, just, let's just put a stake in the sand and say that News24 always reported that Bushiri is a self-proclaimed prophet. You know, it's, it's so complicated with, with religion, but he's a self-proclaimed prophet. And he spoke to people's fears, I suppose. He spoke to people's desire to to belong and to believe in a higher being. Now, that's a whole different debate, I think. But what we have seen is a proliferation of churches, of institutions, uh, of fly-by-night pop-up churches who take people's money and run, Juanita. That's, that's concerning. And we know that the Commission on Religious and Language Rights have started looking at this. You know, it's difficult. You don't want to register churches. And, you know, once you go down that route, that's a slippery slope too. But unfortunately, we do see unscrupulous pastors and religious men of the cloth who aren't there to save people's souls, as it were, but are actually there to uh, to pickpocket them. And Liz, when Bushiri was um, arrested in October and appeared in court subsequently, you saw this immense following outside of the court. Obviously, you knew that, you know, his services were well attended and he has, um, you know, a great amount of support. But I was not expecting what I saw outside the Pretoria Magistrates Court when he appeared in October. Kanita, having served as a general reporter for, for quite a number of years before I came into politics, I remember when the CRL Commission uh, first started with its an inquiry into how we can regulate churches. So many of these big names, which if you uh, look at them, they seem to have some affiliation with some political parties. Bushiri, for instance, uh, if you remember the video, uh, Naledi Chirwa from the EFF took her thanking Bushiri. He's also been seen in mingling with the EFF leadership as as uh, high up as Julius Malema. That is the problem with the with the machinery of, of churches, is that they have an immense support. And that support translates to how they can somehow co-opt the, the political parties. I mean, Kanita Q, you, you've seen so many times where the presidents and big political players go to these churches and they are surrounded by these church leaders who pray for them. And, you know, this is it's become a way for them to, to garner support. Church leaders need politicians for legitimacy. And then, you know, politicians need church leaders 
for public support, for money, for financing, that kind of thing. Mm. That's correct. And and if you see the kind of resistance, I, I'm not sure if you're aware, Peter, or if you were following the CRL Commission, if you, if you saw the resistance within the leadership of the churches, the clandestine churches, charismatic churches, when, when the CRL wanted to open their books, it was clear that, you know, there is some level of I, I know that I will, I, will, I will be crucified for this, but there's some level of corruption within the church organizations and the church system itself. And that is goes back to the lockdown regulations, for instance, how the churches were, you know, strong arming government. Mm. It gives you an idea of the power that they wield in politics. Maybe you guys might expand. No, no, look, uh, uh, let's first of all, no one's crucifying anyone on this program. I think let's stay away from uh, from uh, <laughs> uh, medieval violence. Um, but look, I think I think uh, politicians have in the past, especially in this country, uh, pre-94 and post-94, very cynically exploited the relationship between religious organizations and, and their flocks. Um, you know, I remember vividly in 2009, I followed Jacob Zuma around ahead of the general election in Northwest and Limpopo and Mpumalanga. And the, the first stop was always religious leaders who stopped to pray for the persecuted leader of the ANC. You know, and he was he was a choir boy. He was a church choir boy when he when he went to those churches and fell on his knees and and hands on his head and shoulders. And, you know, it, it, it just goes to show that. The, the constituency of churches, the constituency of the religious community in this country, as we saw in the U.S. election that's just gone past, you know, it's a, it's this country as the U.S. and Europe and other countries is inheritively very conservative. Um, many people identify with churches and politicians, very cynically, as I've said, see churches as a way to get access to uh, to voting fodder. So, so what happened with Bushiri? Um, look, Juanita, in the in the beginning, you said it, it exposed quite a, a number of things, and I suppose we need to get to that as well. The our porous borders, the fact that Department of Home Affairs can't keep people in or out, the the decision to give him bail was that the right or the wrong one? And then obviously the the criminal justice system. Why weren't they able to keep tabs on on someone like this who who not only was uh, feared to be a flight risk, but proved to be a flight risk. But just to get back to my original point, you know, politicians cynically exploit church going and uh, and religious people in this country. But that happens all over the world. It's not new. It's not uh, unique to us. So there's a template to this, right? It, it, it almost feels like there is when it comes to, you know, the uh, ostentatious uh, sort of almost you know, scammerish, <laughs> if that's a word, as nature of, of these self-proclaimed prophets with their big uh, delegations, with their fast cars, um, etc. And there's always almost, and there's almost always, you know, the stories and the accusations of being swindled out of money by devout um, worshippers. And that's what obviously happened in the case of Shepard Bushiri, where he's now, um, you know, facing uh, charges around money laundering, fraud and corruption. But but the reality of it is that he went through the criminal justice system and he was presented to the magistrate's court and it was the issue of bail and it was exposed at the time that he had multiple passports, that he entered South Africa under dodgy circumstances, and yet he was still given um, bail of 200,000 rand, him and his wife, Mary, 
I mean, how in 2020 are we still having these discussions around around bail and what does it mean and how can it be done more equitably? I'm at a loss, Kanisa. I mean, um, to be fair, you know, this this uh, the the Bushiri story uh, was not in my radar initially. But, you know, considering the evidence, the mounting evidence against him, the fact that he wasn't even documented in, in South Africa, the fact the allegations uh, or, or, or the case against him in terms of the monies that have been going to and fro in his church, um, it, 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 it boggled my mind to, to find out that, you know, the, the magistrate uh, in, in charge of this case decided even with... Uh, the NPA were appealing to the judge not to give him any any leniency in terms of bail, uh, that he received bail. The the conditions were strict, but nonetheless, this is a man with influence outside of uh, of the country. So it it wasn't that much of a surprise, given that we have this issue of our poorest borders, that he would be able to escape and escape so easily. The issue which has been said a lot by some of my peers is that uh, the problem is that, you know, to find out from him, from the man himself that he's left South Africa tells you something about the cracks in our systems. So so let's just uh, take it back a little bit. So, so his bail conditions were the fact that he obviously handed over his passports. Uh, he was supposed to um, report to police station every Monday and every Friday. He was also told not to speak to any witnesses. Um, that's what was his bail conditions, right? And then on Friday, this last Friday, he was meant to report to a police station. He did not show up. He was not at his home, and that's when only now do, do we come to know that Hawks officials started becoming panicky. And then there was the suspicion that he would have been in the delegation of the president of Malawi who paid a working visit to President Cyril Ramaphosa on Friday um, on his return from, from uh, Pretoria Watercliffe Air Force Base to Lilongwe. So there was the suspicion that he could have been in this delegation, especially since President Lazarus Chikwera arrived with about 26 people in his delegation and wanted to leave with about 64. Um, And so that already raised a lot of eyebrows, um, you know, within South African law enforcement. They decided to go and verify every single person causing some sort of diplomatic uh, uh, tension, particularly because now President Chakwera was basically sitting in his plane while while Hawks officials were trying to verify every single person on board. But the reality of it is that by the time they were alerted, it seems now that Bushiri and his wife had already escaped South Africa. And when you ask Home Affairs, how, how does this happen? It's, it's so bizarre to me, Peter, that... Aaron Mutsuledi says, no, Bushiri was not in our care. Bushiri was in the care of law enforcement. We were not uh, surveilling him. He didn't pass lawfully through our borders. And, oh, well, the issue of porous borders is a long-standing issue. So we don't have anything to do with this. It's just completely bizarre. Look, it is bizarre. It's it's a crazy story, and I'd love to hear uh, how Bashiri escaped. I think that's what we all want to find out. How did he actually? I mean, it's it's quite a distance to travel from uh, from from this country to uh, to where he lives outside Lilongwe. So um, I'd love to get the backstory to that. I don't think it's that crazy, Peter, in the sense that 
literally these things happen on a daily basis through Bitebridge, through, mm. um, uh, you know. Well, yes. So it, 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 it yep. really isn't that, like, I don't even think it's an expensive feat. I think yeah. I think a few hundred bucks <laughs> can, can push you through the border. So you think it, it'll be a boring movie then? That part of it, the rest of it, I mean, we're still getting to the exciting bits. <laughs> but your team, Conita, has written extensively about the issues on the border between South Africa and Zimbabwe over the last couple of months, where, you know, the fence there is 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 almost non-existent in some places, and there's been enormous uh, issues around the procurement of a new fence or to repair the fence. So border control, incidentally, has been an issue since 1994. I remember shortly after Nelson Mandela became president, um, he took down, actually took down the border between uh, South Africa and Mozambique, running through the Kruger National Park, because there were human rights issues around the border being uh, electrified. That was repaired a couple of years uh, after that. But but budgeting issues for home affairs to secure the borders has been an issue over the last 20 years. Um, and it is something that we have not yet gotten to grips to uh, with, rather. We, we know how many uh, Zimbabwean expatriates are in this country and the reasons why they come to this country and how easy it is for, the, for them to come to this country. Of yeah. course, uh, it, it presents some serious security issues to us. We know what's happening in the northern parts of the country that you are, that you find yourself in at the moment, Conita. So we need effective border control. We need to know who comes in and go, goes out of the country. And that's a major issue for Aaron Matsualeri, the Minister of Home mm. Affairs, who doesn't seem to be able to get to grips with it. Yeah, sorry to interject, but I feel like what, what Aaron Matsualeri uh, represents is government uh, departments and government agencies that work in silos and and they just mm. you know, this is not our problem this is we do what we need to do and so the hawks for example will say the same thing that we needed him to um appear you know before uh, the police station on friday uh, we don't we don't handle borders and so him fleeing is not our our concern then you have the same yeah. thing with 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 international relations versus defense defense you know the yeah. international relations says we only deal with the state visit we don't deal with or, you know diplomatic issues we don't deal with you know security related so so it's almost like all south african agencies are pointing fingers at each other with no real effort to understand what actually happened how was he able to uh, flee the country and then issue a statement on saturday hold a media broadcast on Saturday evening, literally making demands um, to the South African government. It, it made a mockery, I thought, of, of our law enforcement agencies, Liz and Conita. I thought it made a mockery of border management control uh, agencies. It, it, it showed us up again for the umpteenth time. Yeah. And this time, you know, it's quite embarrassing you know, uh, the rest of Africa looking at us and saying, look, you can't even control someone that you've already arrested. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, I, I keep going back to that press conference or, or or even that statement that he released prior to that. The fact that we were not aware from our officials who had an idea, who knew exactly where he, I mean, they they, they knew that he had escaped by then. But they were still mum about it. And we had to be shown off again. It speaks to... Uh, the inadequacies of our government, uh, and and it, it speaks to. I, I I'm at a loss, Kadita. I I I really I really feel like I even listening to Aaron Mutswaledi in in Parliament as he tried to to explain his role, his department, saying that there's going to be consequence for for some officials, but that's not enough. That's not what we need. The the and you are right in saying that everyone seems to be working in a silo. There's 
no cohesiveness in, 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 in these departments. And that's a huge problem. That it's, it's a problem that has existed for a number of years in government and in departments and in our cabinet. As we speak now, uh, Liz, the um, Bushiris have handed themselves over to the police in Malawi. Um, they've also been two warrants of arrests issued in Pretoria for him. And South Africa said they're going to begin the process to extradite him to come and face the charges. His bail has been revoked. But obviously, we know that these processes take a long time. And there's also one other thing before we move on to the other topic is that South Africa doesn't have uh, you know, good historic relations with Malawi. So for us to think that um, the Malawian government is going to bend over backwards to bring Bushiri back so that we can we can make him stand trial in South Africa, I think we'll be a, a little bit misplaced to think that. And I also think that um, he enjoys a lot of support very high up um, in Malawi, and we can't underestimate that. We, they, there was a reason why he fled South Africa for Malawi, um, and I think that it's something to watch. Konita, look, I think there are dangers lurk in whatever whatever processes are going to be followed now, and I'm not that au fait with our relations with with our historical relations with Malawi, but it might very well turn out that Malawi says, look, given what is happening or has happened in South Africa in regards to xenophobic violence or you know state capture and uh, and the state of your judicial system or whatever the case may be they can say look we're not going to extradite him to South Africa because of reason xyz and that's going to reflect very badly on South Africa so you know uh, Malawi and the prophet Bushiri to a lesser extent has us by the short and curlies at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Moving on to our second topic, as someone who has uh, who was trying to to hold the, the state capture commission, the Zondo Commission of Inquiry investigating state capture by the short and curlies is former president Jacob uh-huh. Zuma, because they um, obviously attempted this week. He was he was meant to answer questions on Monday. Uh, he was summoned to to appear before the Zondo Commission, um, and they then decided to apply um, for Justice Raymond Zondo to recuse himself. It's always fascinating. I, I find Muzisika Kani quite fascinating to listen to generally. <laughs> but but I really just could not understand why they would think that this attempt, that we won't see through this attempt to have Justice Zondo be seen as this biased individual. Liz? I beg to differ, uh, Kanita. I think this is a stalling tactic. Um, I think uh, he knows um, the president, the former president, that is. He knows that this won't hold any water. He doesn't have any strong argument against uh, the Zondo recusal. I think this is just a stalling tactic. I think it's it's a way for him to, just like he has been doing with his corruption case in Bittamaritzbeck, he has been stalling. The man who, who allegedly wants uh, his day in court I don't see him with his legal team and and they busy concocting these uh, legal arguments that they know that it has any merit. And my conspiracy is that he's waiting until uh, the Zono Commission and term ends next year, March. Uh, that's what my theory is. 
And the court has obviously said that they won't extend the deadline for the Zondo Commission. So, you know, Justice Zondo and the team there have so much of work to do. So this is just a matter of stalling. I I, I get you 100% on, the, on that. And the other thing is that a lot of what has been raised in terms of, of, of the basis for the recusal is just smoke and mirrors. The fact that, you know, Justice Ondo says, I'm not your friend. I saw you on one or two occasions. Yes, I have probably had a child with your, you know, your now estranged sister-in-law because, you know, former President Jacob Zuma is not, no longer with his wife, Tobega, um, you know, in the 90s. Subsequent to that, he was appointed a deputy chief, you know, first uh, a judge, a justice, and then a deputy chief justice. President Zuma signed off. Uh, after uh, Chief Justice Mukheng Mukheng recommended that he that he head this commission, and so there's all of this drama, you know, the fact that you know him being kind to witnesses uh, has been the subject of their or the basis for their asking for recusal. For me, it's completely laughable. But at what point? At what point do we see through this, uh, Peter, and we say we've been through this before? Stalingrad legal strategy. We've seen it. We've been through it. Yeah, can't play us. I I think anyone who has been following the travails of Jacob Zuma over the last ten years, even if it is just in passing, can see what's going on here. And Liz is absolutely right. It's a stalling tactic. Look, there's no absolutely no legal basis uh, in my mind. And I've listened to the arguments from Musi Sekakane and listened to to Paul Pretorius rebut those. And uh, we've all watched uh, this commission very closely since it came into being in October 2018. There's no legal basis. And and, and look, uh, uh, what was striking uh, to me listening to Musi Sekakane was a couple of times where he said, uh, Deputy Chief Justice, it's not you. I'm very concerned about Advocate Pretorius. You know, you are fine. Then why does he want the Deputy Chief Justice to recuse himself if he's actual concern is with Paul Pretorius. And I think there's a massive misconception out there in the public as well that this is not a court of law. This is not a court of law where there's an adversarial approach yes, where the inquiry. court, uh, where, they, where you've got two sides fighting. The, the, the commission is the deputy chief justice, is the judge. He is the commission. His job is to look for evidence and to delve deep into whatever is presented in front of him. That's his job. Then he draws up a report. That report goes to the president, and the president decides what to do with that, or the National Prosecuting Authority and the Hawks. That's how it works. So Jacob Zuma has always said, I want my day in court. Well, the, the last thing that he actually wants is his day in court. And the last thing he actually wants is some form of uh, of justice for himself. And he'll try everything uh, to try and stop that. And we've seen that this week. I think, uh, I th- well, I hope for the day that Zuma gets his comeuppance. There was an indication by Muzi Sekakani that if he doesn't get his way, if former President Jacob Zuma doesn't get his way and Zondo doesn't recuse himself, then he will do probably what uh, Dudu Mieni did was just, you know, invoke their right to remain silent uh, out of fear of um, incriminating themselves, which is absolute nonsense because they have so much to account for. They have been implicated so much in the State Capture Commission. In fact, they probably could assist the work of the State Capture Commission with all these different theories that they've been, um, you know, bending about for so long. Mm. And mm. and the reality of it is that it it risks undermining you know you know i i I digress for a second but you know 
Muzi Sekekani went through this soliloquy where he where he spoke about how there's what no a beautiful word, Conita. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> soliloquy. <laughs> Please educate us. <laughs> where he where he went where he went through this um, you know narrative of how there's no legal term called state capture, right? And that um, and that's something Jacob Zuma, Liz, you've heard this a million times, where he's like, is this is the judiciary captured? Is Parliament captured? Then why do you say? State captures. I remember when he said this for the first time. I think it was in Umtata uh, yeah. during the NBZ campaign. Yeah, it was. I think it was 2016 where he really went uh, uh, to town with this. With this, and everywhere we'd go, covering um, former President Zuma, he'd say this. But but the point is that in 2020, despite everything we've seen there's still this political dispute that state capture is a myth. And I think maybe, Peter, you can you can uh, disagree with me or come in here. But I think that maybe us focusing on the issue of state capture as a, as a political, theatrical sort of drama, more than this is an organized crime syndicate, has allowed them to sort of play politics when this is, in fact, just a serious band of looters and thieves. Juanita, two things. One is that we shouldn't allow ourselves uh, to be to be to be hoodwinked or dragged off course or our attention being diverted by this kind of talk, is my opinion. I think we should keep our eye on the ball, which is um, that there was an organized very systematic and very effective attempt to capture the state on behalf of private criminal and political interests. There have been academic studies which have done enormous work to try and explain this phenomenon uh, and have tried to explain it along academic terms. You think of the, the, the big study that was done by the University of Witwatersrand in 2018, I think. Um, so there, there have been a number of academic studies looking at this. So, so I think, yes, uh, there will be a lot of noise. We spoke about in uh, previously. We spoke about the the political noise around Ace Mahashuli and the way that they tried to muddy the waters. We shouldn't be swayed. I think state capture is a real thing. Uh, it did happen. Uh, we saw the ravages of state capture unfold over a, a good couple of years. So if 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 they don't agree with the definition, I mean that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of academic to me. Like you say, it was a bunch of looters who targeted the fiscus. Who, uh, in effect, hobbled the state's ability to deliver services to the people who need it most, and that should be the focus. Liz, your final thoughts? Well, I, I agree with uh, Peter, uh, and uh, what boggles the mind is that the man himself uh, was in charge of ensuring that there is a state capture commission, uh, willingly on, on or not. Uh, but the reality is, I, you know, at this point, I don't even care whether I see him in jail or not. Uh, it's it's not about that to me. I, I he's a seventy-something-year-old. I, I couldn't care less. It's more about accountability for me. Uh, and and it's 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 just to just you know close the gaps in in the South African systems to ensure that we don't have this kind of patronage network again. It's callous. It's callous how he has conducted himself as a former president and to think that he is actually even entertaining that kind of testimony that we saw from Dudu Mimeli, it's a slap in the face of South Africans. Well, obviously, this is not the end of it. And I think we'll be talking about the fake <laughs> for a very long time. Peter, your final words? 
Look, uh, uh, I can't wait to see him go to jail. I think he did enormous damage. I think he betrayed so many people. He betrayed the trust of 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 his supporters, of his party, of the country, of the constitution. So, so yes, accountability needs to be exacted. And the one thing, Juanita, I think courts have in recent times grown tired of Zuma's attempts to throw in roadblocks ahead of the the train of justice, as it were. And and we've seen a couple of of courts throw out applications. We've seen a couple of 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 cost orders against him, and I think we're going to see more of that. Absolutely, and I think that um, we have a long way to go to fix our country uh, uh, and the, its law enforcement from from what we learn as a result of the Bushiri debacle and obviously what is uncovered in state capture. That's all we have for you today from all of us at Politics Unmuted. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by my colleague Catherine Rice. The music is courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. And if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and follow the hashtag politicsunmuted. Unmuted.